seat this morning. Uh, I wanted to uh, come up, uh, for many of you, you were able to make the uh, members meeting last week and everything, where we talked a little bit about uh, some of the things that we look for in our church. One of those things that we're actively working on is uh, seeking a, a bigger perspective of who the church is, not just focusing uh, uniquely on uh, city church, but actually looking to the past, looking to church history to guide and kind of root us and found us uh, as a church. One of the other things that we're doing actively is actually pursuing connections with other churches uh, here locally. Uh, a few months ago, uh, Ryan McCarthy, who's sitting up front and who will be bringing the word this morning, uh, we got a chance just to uh, see one another kind of one-off uh, at, uh, I think it was Dutch's Hamburgers, and uh, we're like, hey, we need to get together sometime. And so we did. We sat down for coffee, and it was just like a letter from home because, like many of you, uh, Ryan McCarthy's had a ministry to you uh, in the past, whether in high school or college. Uh, I don't think probably anybody from middle school ministry, but my sister was in your, oh, Sawyer? Were you in middle school ministry when he was? Okay, good, 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 good. But then also in college, uh, but also here at City Church, uh, we don't have uh, large enough resources to build out like a biblical counseling uh, program here specifically for our people. And so we do a lot of uh, referring out uh, to other really good resources. One of those resources is Soul Care at Christ Chapel, where Ryan McCarthy kind of uh, works actively to uh, equip uh, leaders there and do biblical counsel. And so we've just been blessed by him over the last few weeks as we've gotten to reconnect. Um, and so I uh, want for you guys to give him a warm welcome this morning when he comes up. Uh, but uh, here's what I want to do uh, beforehand. At our member meeting last week, I mentioned to you guys that uh, I really do, when I think about like what we are doing on Sunday mornings, I think about the word being the fire that we gather around. It is the most important thing that we do on a Sunday morning is to publicly read the scriptures. Publicly read God's word here in Fort Worth, uh, not just because of our church, but because of many churches reading the word of God. Uh, there is, I believe, a ministry of reconciliation. There is a redemption that happens here in the city, not necessarily by our hands uh, going out and fixing things, but simply by declaring the word of God. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage of scripture that we have for this morning and then pray that God would bless it. Um, and, uh, and then Ryan's going to come up and teach us out of it. So uh, if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 28. While you're turning there, I want to explain one other thing that we've started doing over the last year, and that is uh, that because of the importance of God's Word, because of how uh, crucial we see this as a part of the way that we gather, uh, at the end of reading the Scripture, it's very, uh, you'll hear uh, week in and week out for us to just say and declare that this is the Word of the Lord. And then uh, a hearty uh, response uh, is something that y'all have become accustomed to, praise be to God. And so uh, after I read this, I want for everybody just heartily to say and agree that this is the word of God. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father, we thank you so much for not leaving us alone, but speaking to us mightily in your scriptures, in your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for not only speaking to us, but allowing for us to have understanding in the spirit. Father, I pray an extra anointing on Ryan McCarthy this morning, Lord, that you would empower uh, your word uh, in him uh, through your spirit. Lord, we pray uh, that you would be uh, moving mightily in our midst. And Lord, we pray these things with great faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Chris. It's, um, it's a real pleasure to be here, honestly. I, uh, it, keep your Bibles open to, to Mark chapter 12, and if you uh, don't have them open yet, shame on you. I'm judging you. Um, no, but as you're doing that, I just wanted to say it's, it's, uh, it was fun because I had a really easy time parking this morning. I literally live right out back here, so when the Texas Girls Choir practices and they open their door, our kids listen from our backyard. So we were right here. I had to walk away from the church to get here, actually. So um, as, as we're getting prepared, I got a couple little nuggets, hopefully of wisdom to share with you. One of them is to write with a broken pencil is pointless. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I appreciate that. You know why the old, do you guys know why the old man fell into the well? He couldn't see that well. Right? I know. This isn't me just trying too hard. I'm going somewhere with these. Did you hear about the guy whose whole left side was cut off? Don't worry about it. He's all right now. Okay. All right. Now, every one of those cheesy jokes are built off homonyms, you know, that, that some words have multiple meanings, and apart from the context, you really can't understand what a word means. And there's a lot of examples of homonyms, but I, I, I would say that there's some words that have so many meanings or they're used so loosely that they lose any sense of uh, clarity as to what they're about. And two of the most, I think, prominent words that might come to my mind, like as examples, the first two examples that I would come up with show up in this passage, love and heart. I mean, and Andrew, you mentioned it last week. I mean, like, you could say, I love potato chips. I love my grandma. I love God. I mean, to, that's not the same word, but we use that word very loosely when a, you know, 13-year-old is in love with somebody, you know, is that, okay, is that love? I think even more so the word heart has a lot of different meanings that come with it. I mean, first of all, what does a heart emoji mean? I mean, like, if you see a heart emoji, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Love. So is Jesus saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your love? No. I mean, think about it. There's so many different ways heart is used. If you know something by heart, you have it memorized. I cross my heart, or from the bottom of my heart, means I'm telling the truth. I had a change of heart. I'm thinking differently. That breaks my heart. It hurts at a heart level. Um, his heart was in the right place. He's well-meaning. I'll, I'll take that to heart. I'll seriously consider it. What a sweetheart. Oh, bless your heart. I didn't have the heart to tell her the bad news. He's a cold-hearted snake. You look into his eyes. Uh-oh. You're going to be stuck on that the rest of the day. Um, you could be half-hearted. That's not for the faint of heart. I mean, there's a long list of examples. And then Jesus says, 
you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. I have an idea of what he meant and what he, what he was saying, but considering that this is the most important commandment, I don't want to go with my best guess. So I want to zoom in and hopefully clarify what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, unpack it a bit. And most importantly, I think I want to bring it to a level where we live and make it practical. So just a little context first. Am I right, Andrew, in saying that last week you focused more on the Deuteronomy section? Well, I mean, we're looking at Mark. And in this passage, Jesus, he's in his last week of ministry. He's... Um, He's, he's gone viral, if you will. I mean, from the moment he entered Jerusalem, people were declaring him to be king, and everywhere he spoke, people were hanging on his every word. He performed miracles. He opened eyes. He blew people's minds with his answers. Uh, he was never boring. That would be an understatement. He was the most loved and hated person ever. I mean, honestly, in comparison, I would think that he would make Donald Trump looked politically correct because people, I mean, he was, he was upsetting people with the things he said, and, and in particular, the religious leaders. He was so provocative that he enraged certain people and he delighted others. For the, the Pharisees and the scribes, for good reason, they didn't like him because this guy is claiming to be the son of God and along with that, denouncing them with strong accusations and so ultimately, Jesus was a threat. And for that reason, as he was teaching in the temple, a group of religious and political leaders come to him with a set of questions, and their goal was to trip him up, to disqualify him, discredit him. And the questions, if you look at Mark, one, the first one is a question about his authority. Who gives you the authority to do these things? And then he, they asked him a question about paying taxes, in which the answer could either get him in trouble with the, with the Jews or with the Romans. Either way, but he perfectly evades every one of these traps, by the way. Then they ask him a trick question about the relationship between marriage, eternity, and the resurrection. And it brings us to our fourth question in this series. And it comes, it's a question about priority. It comes from a scribe in Matthew. And the book of Matthew teaches he's also a Pharisee. But the scribes, we just read it, but verse 28 says, And one of the scribes came, about, came up and heard heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that, the, that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? The scribes um, had determined that the Jews were obligated to obey 613 precepts in the law, and one of their favorite exercises was to debate about which was the greatest. And this seemed like a good question to bring to Jesus, and then Jesus answers with the Shema. Now, Hear, O Israel, he's, listen up, pay attention, listen with the intent to actually obey this. And then he goes and says, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the indicative. That's the good news that this is true. He is our God. He's one. And it was important to say that he was one, especially with Mark's audience, because there was the debate as to whether or not the Christ, Christians were, were um, polytheists worshiping more than one God. He's saying, the Lord is one, and then he goes on to give this crucial imperative, because this is true, we must love him with all of our heart, all our soul, our mind, all of our strength. Now, I don't believe heart, soul, mind, and strength are different components of a human being. I don't think that they're, uh, he's going, 
and segmenting out what it means to be a human, I think what he's saying is with our whole being, with all that we are, right? But these aren't simply synonyms of one another either. However, I think, and that's why we're doing this series, it is of such significance, though, he starts with the heart. And so what, what is the heart? He's given us this most important commandment. He starts with Jesus, uh, saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. What is the heart? So hard to define this word. It's the governing center of a person. It, it is the locus, the locating source of a person's thoughts, will, and, and emotions, and knowledge of right and wrong. I'm going to highlight three. We think, we feel, and we choose from our hearts. We think, we feel, and we choose from our hearts. My intro examples kind of hinted at this, by the way. I had a change of heart. means I had a change of mind. It broke my heart. It hurts at an emotional level, right? I didn't have the heart. I didn't have the will to tell her the bad news. So there's, there are elements of this in the English language, but from a Jewish understanding, from a biblical understanding, the heart was what we, you think from the heart. And you can go through. There are long lists of scriptures that show this, that we think, we have ideas at a heart level. We meditate on God's word at the heart, in the heart. We, memor, we, are, we think with the heart. We memorize, we imagine. It all comes from the heart. The Israelites didn't, ha, didn't think of the brain as being the source of thinking. Thinking is located here. Proverbs, for example, repeatedly calls us to keep these words stored up in your heart. Jesus says in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. Point made, we think from the heart. We feel, though, from the heart as well. What we want, what we seek, what we feel, what we long for, that comes from the heart. To have a broken heart is actually originally a Hebrew term. Our hearts love, our hearts hate, they grieve, our hearts worry, depression and joy spring from the heart. And then we also, we choose from the heart. Will and volition, motivations, commitments come from the heart. A disobedient will comes from a hard heart. Faint, being faint-hearted comes from a, a will that's been paralyzed by fear. A surrendered heart or a strengthened heart is what happens when the Lord starts working in your heart. But over all of these, I'm just going to summarize these, but keep these Keep these categories in mind. We think, we feel, and we choose from the heart. But the heart, ultimately, it's the source of all life and vitality. I mean, well, physically speaking, it's the organ that sustains life. It applies to, in a spiritual sense. Proverbs 4.23, uh, I like the NIV version of this. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's, your life is flowing from your heart. Okay, so when Jesus tells us the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, he's saying, love God with thoughts that are worthy of him, minds that are informed and transformed and renewed by the word of God, um, shaped by faith, uh, by, by a joyful faith in a good, glorious God. So at a, at, at a mind level, I should believe that God is good. I'm joyfully trusting in him, and I'm thinking thoughts that are, you know, pleasing to God. That's loving God with all my heart in the way I'm thinking. It's also loving with appropriate affections. I should passionately desire to know God because I see him as worthy. I make him known. Uh, I want to make him known. 
I have emotion. I would be an emotional person, but my emotions are perfectly in accord with what God feels. To, to love God with all my heart at, a, at an emotional, emotional level means I love what he loves and I hate what he hates and I'm never lacking zeal. And then to love with a will that is cheerful, that cheerfully submits to his authority, doing what he commands and avoiding what he forbids. So let me just, I'm just trying to be really clear here. Here's evidence that you love God with all of your heart. Okay, so I hope you're asking yourself this question. Do I love God with all of my heart? Well, here's some evidence. You can't stop thinking about him. You delight in his law. You meditate on it day and night. You, you keep almost obnoxiously bringing him up in conversation. You're very emotional, but in a, not in a problematic way. You get angry for the right reasons, you express it in the right way, and you stop being angry when the matter is taken care of. You get angry for the right reasons. You're joyful. You have fear, but it's a fear of the Lord. Number one. Number two is a far second. You don't stumble or struggle with sin much. When you do, you run from it. You run straight to God. Uh, I hope you guys aren't feeling good about yourself right now. That's my goal. <laughs> okay? Just showing my cards here. Um, this, there's a consistent sense of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control that's just kind of flowing out of you. That's, the, that's evidence that you are loving God with all of your heart. And so when God looks inside each one of us, he should see a loving reflection of himself. Andrew, I heard you said to love God is to display the character of God back to him because it's flowing from the heart. So how, how are you doing with this? Is any... Just raise your hand if, if anybody's feeling good about themselves as they hear this standard. Good. I shouldn't see any hands. I, I think there is a reality. This command is not being given to neutral people with blank slates just ready to obey. Now, our, we have a major problem. Our hearts are unknowable and incurable. We, the... the most famous passage to go to, Jeremiah 17, 9, says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who, who can understand it? Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. So the Lord can understand it. Beyond that, nobody, nobody understands the heart. The heart, here's why, here's why we can't understand our hearts. Because the heart is deceitful above all things. I'll say it another way. Nobody lies to you more than your own heart. Nobody lies to you more than your own heart. I tend to trust myself, for example. I tend to trust myself in tempting situations. I tend to interpret all conflicts with a self-serving spin. I'm the victim. My wife is the villain. It's always my wife, right? If you're married, that's where most of my conflict happens, right? Or my kids, they are, no, I'm not going to make bad jokes. Okay. Um, I evaluate myself by my best intentions. I evaluate others by their worst behaviors. My heart's lying to me with that, that frame of mind. I assume I do something because I love God when I'm really just getting revenge or just gossiping. I mean, I can just, the... The number of things that come up uh, 
are endless. And the thing is, I can only come up with the examples I've discovered. My heart is, lies to me. All of our hearts, we are self-deceived deceivers. We're lying to people and we don't even know it because we've already successfully lied to ourselves. That, that means that we can't even take a look at our true condition, which is our hearts are desperately sick. Like a terminal cancer that has totally devastated every faculty. What we think, what we feel, what we love, what we choose has been totally and perfectly corrupted by the infection of sin. And the source of this sickness, if I were to go with the context of Jeremiah 17, the source of the sickness is a failure to trust in the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 5 and on says, you know, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And then, you know, the next verse 7 says, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who whose trust is the Lord. We are trusting in one of two things. It's either the Lord or it's us. To the extent that the Lord isn't, the, if the Lord isn't the one who's getting us out of bed, moving us, motiv motivating us, who we're feeling a daily dependence on, we are to that degree trusting in self and everything flowing from that is corrupted by that self-serving spin that we're blind to. It's, it's a desperate condition um, so what, what can we do about it? Well, I didn't like put these notes on the screen, but if you are a note taker, write down these three steps. One, we can get real about our hearts. Amen. I like that. Two, invite God to search our hearts. And three, meet him where we are today. Right, let me break that down. One, get real about your heart. First step, you don't sugarcoat things. If you want to lose weight, you got to start by stepping on the scale. You know, or if you want to start spending money differently, you have to um, look at the bank account, look at how much you're earning and where you're spending. You have to kind of get an accurate assessment of what's going on. A clue to understanding our hearts is by considering honestly what comes out. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Luke 6, 43-45, he says, No good tree bears bad fruit. No bad tree bears good fruit. You know, out of, you don't pick olives from a, I don't remember the exact things, from a, a grape tree. You know, you, you don't, oh, you, there's no grape trees. Whatever. The botan I'm not a botanical person. Okay. So the botanist, that's the word I was looking for. So he's saying like, whoever you are, whatever you're rooted in, that's what's going to come out of you. Well, the only way we can really know what's in our heart is by looking at what comes out. <clears throat> Let me ask you this question. Now, if you've heard this before, don't say anything. Why did water just come out of this bottle? Because I hit it, right? Okay, but why didn't milk come out of this bottle? It had water in it, right? Why does impatience and anger and or yelling, raising my voice, come out of me when my kids start testing me? Why didn't love, joy, peace, and patience and kindness come out of me when my kids start testing me? It's not the testing that causes the water. It's the fact that there's water in it. There's the, the fact that there is evil in our hearts, a self-serving spin that thinks the world should revolve around me 
and my agenda and things making me look good. Guarding the things that I find precious. And if I find the Lord more precious than anything, I see every test as an opportunity to glorify the Lord. But so what's coming out of me is an indication of what's in me. And this is everything. Words come out of me. Those words reflect a heart that is either, either rooted in loving the Lord or loving myself. Thoughts and beliefs come out of me. Now, you can't see what I'm thinking until you hear me interpret what happens. You know? I, when Brandy and I were like in, di- when we've been in difficult places in our marriage, one of my serial offenses is to misinterpret things that she says, and it makes her so mad. Understandably, she'll say something, and I'll think that she is shooting me down, and I just misunderstood, and I assumed the worst interpretation. Now, I could say, I believe that Brandy loves me, but my interpretations portray the exact opposite. When I assume the worst of what she says, I'm saying with my heart, I don't believe you're for me. Interpretations reveal my heart, okay? Um, What makes me really upset? What makes me really excited? What makes me... Strong emotions are like the dashboard light on the car. It indicates what's going on under the hood. Strong emotions, the stronger the emotion, the more of a direct line you see to your heart. And then last, my commitments, my choices reveal what I'm really committed to at a heart level. I could say I love the Lord and I'm going to spend time with him, but if every morning the snooze button goes and goes and goes, my actual choices say I'm committed to the Lord, but really I'm committed to sleep. So what is coming out of you? That is going to be the key, the key to knowing, to getting real with your heart. This is an exercise that I often use, sometimes explicitly in counseling, but sometimes I just go through it in my own head. It's called situations, thoughts, response, situations, response, thoughts, and motives. That's something I stole from Paul Tripp, uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. So I have it up here on the screen. Borrowing from Luke 6 with the tree, no, no good tree bears bad fruit. Things happen. There's situations, there's circumstances that occur, and then we respond. Call the responses the fruit, okay? What's below that? beliefs, thoughts, self-talk. That is underneath the grounds now. You're now going invisible. You can't see what I'm thinking. I can know what I'm thinking, but you can't know what I'm thinking. And then below that would be even motives. What am I ultimately serving? What am I working toward? What am I working for? So let me put in some examples. Here's one example. When I encounter the rude drivers and clueless drivers on the overpass going from I-30 onto I-35 heading north. Okay, do you know what I'm talking about? It's that one where you, you're, you know, you're heading out and then you want to go north to Keller for, you know. All right, there are two lanes. Do you guys know which lane says lane ends, merge? Merge right, right. Your heart is in the right place. The left lane is not the lane that you cruise in. And if you're in the left lane, you need to put on your blinker and merge right. And yet everybody hangs out in the left lane. And so I cruise along in my Honda Accord, which is important. And I cruise along in the right lane and I'm just passing all these people thinking, this is great. And then I get to the end and people just start cutting me off as if I'm, as if I'm in the merge lane. And I live in a Honda Accord in the pickup truck world, 
I get bullied out of my spot. <clears throat> and what comes out of me? Less than Christian words and gestures, right? So what am I thinking? Someone might think that guy, you know, he's so angry or whatever. Why? Well, he's running late. No, almost never running late when I'm heading out there. I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm just that's not in my example. It's not why. Now, what I what I'm thinking are idiots, jerks, whatever. Or I wish I were driving a tank right now. But at a motive level, here's my most common motive for being annoyed in that situation. I want them to know that I'm right and I'm letting them in. I want justice. I want vindication. Now, if somebody else might not care whatsoever about that, they just want respect or they just want to get somewhere on time. I can't, we all have different hearts. We, we, we might struggle with the same sin for completely different reasons. And the Lord is more concerned about what's going on at a heart level. What catches our attention are the visible things, the situation and the response, right? What would it look like if I was captivated by the glory of God and I loved him, I couldn't believe, I can't believe that he loves me. Flip it around and um, if at a heart level, I want to glorify God. I love him. He's good. What might happen in that same situation is I might think something like, it's no big deal or maybe he's on his way to the hospital, you know, has to get there on time. A more merciful interpretation might happen or maybe the guy's clueless, kind of like me in most other situations. Uh, um, it, it, having a heart focused on the Lord will change the way you think about a situation, and then the, the response is more likely to be something that looks more Christ-like. Let me bring it home just another level with um, another example. Okay, instead of thanking you for loading the dishwasher, your irritated spouse corrects the way you loaded it. <laughs> how, many, how many fights happen over the dishwasher, all right? So the response might be you feel hurt and angry and you counterattack with a unkind, hurtful, sarcastic jab. Well, maybe if you unloaded the dishwasher every once in a while or loaded it, you'd be able to load it the way you want to load it. Whatever. Okay. Ugliness comes out because you don't like what you hurt. What might be, you might, what you, what might you be thinking? <laughs> Said Yoda. Um, what a jerk. I'd never say something like that. I would say thank you. Self-righteousness, essentially. And then at a heart level, it could be I need my spouse to see that I'm doing a good thing here or whatever. But again, if at a heart level, I want to glorify the Lord. I love him. I can't believe that he loves me. What The, the thoughts that might go through your mind are, um, my spouse is a sinner and so am I. Or possibly, have I hurt my spouse? Maybe, maybe I've offended my spouse for some, for some reason. I don't, I'm not aware. Big one here. God, how do you want me to respond right now? Anybody here instinctively pray in a day-to-day -day living moment like that? Well, if you're trusting in yourself, you don't pray in that moment. You go with your gut response. But if you're trusting in the Lord, you realize, I can't trust in me. I can't trust that what's going to naturally come out of me is going to be love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, etc. So that's just getting real about our hearts. Is We need to take an honest look, and the way we do is we start with what's going on. Not that we don't get stuck on the situation. That's a God-ordained test. Every single one of them are tests from a good father who wants to expose what's, you know, who wants to expose your heart.
James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds. Because he wants to test you. And, and so the response is important. What's most important is what's going on at a heart level. So what happens when you see your own heart? If you do, if you do this, you're going to find that the sin in the, at the heart level is more significant than the sin that came out of you. Uh, one, one time I was, um, I, I was asked to preach for renovate at our church, you know, like it was 20s single thing or whatever. And it's, it was a new audience for me. I hadn't been there in a while. And they called it audience. Shows my heart right there. Um, I wanted to perform. I wanted to get up there and impress. I remember, though, during preparation, I found myself procrastinating. I was playing some dumb card game on my computer. And I remember I had a two-hour block to work on this. And I found myself just playing a game and then realizing, like, what am I doing? I've wasted about half my time preparing. And, and then I said, sorry, Lord, I'm sorry for procrastinating, being a bad steward of your time. And, it, and then I stopped and I asked myself, why was I procrastinating? And I, I'm thinking this, the, the situation, thoughts, response, all that. And I realized I'm procrastinating because I want to do an amazing job and I'm afraid that deep down I don't have what it takes to do it. And I'm going to miss an opportunity for glory. I wanted, to, I wanted to be praised. Now, what's a, what's a bigger sin? Procrastinating with a game on your computer or using a sermon to glorify God, but instead of using it to glorify God, you use it for your own glory. What's, what's worse? This, by far, right? Yet, how does God see that sin? Did I open his eyes with my confession? I stopped immediately. I confessed it right then. What happens? God learns nothing. He already died for that. Jesus already died for that sin. It's already forgiven. He's given me the opportunity to see the true condition of my heart so I can give it to him and let go of it. And so the second point is invite God to search your heart. We can open up to the one who knows and who cares, who forgives. He wants us to let go of this because it's not bringing me joy to be a slave to my own agenda I love Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. He knows your heart with crystal clarity. Proverbs 15, 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more are the hearts of the children of men? He sees straight into your heart. And if you see your own heart, it's because he allowed you to see into your heart. And Craig Troxell uh, wrote a book great book called With All of Your Heart. He said this, it is better to have God search our hearts through his word and spirit than to suffer from our own homemade, ill-conceived introspections by which we descend without guide or goal. Christ is our gentle guide who enables us to see just enough of our sin to awaken us, but not too much to sink us into despair. He wants us to see our heart, but he gently walks us into seeing our hearts so that we can slowly get, give it over to him. But at, with every step, there's freedom. Psalm 32, uh, after David had confessed his sin with Bathsheba, he says, blessed is the man whose transgression, you know, has been forgiven. He goes on to say, in whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. There is no need to lie to yourself with, oh, well, I was, 
I was just tired. That's why I yelled earlier. I, yeah, I just had one too many drinks. That's why I, I got, etc. cetera. We, we come up with these excuses because we're afraid to admit what's going on at a heart level. But when we open up before God and invite him to search, we, we get this glorious truth. And you probably, it's a Tim Keller quote. Got good news for you. You're much worse than you think. And you're more loved than you can, you can imagine. God loves you more than you can imagine, while at the same time, you're much worse than you think. It's inviting that gaze so you can see the true condition of your heart. And then this is the main, main point I want to land on is when you see your heart, when God reveals it to you, meet him where you are today. Meet him where you are right now. I'm not saying meet him where he is. Meet him where you are. You recognize your need. I need a new heart before God. All you need is need. You know, you, you, you see, I'm a, my heart's desperately sinful. And then you have it exposed before a God who's already forgiven it. I mean, he loves you now. He doesn't love the version of you that you're supposed to be. He loves you now. Romans 5.8. Uh, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you where you are struggling right now. We love him because he first loved us. So meet him where you are. God doesn't want you to fix your heart and then go to him. You can love him as a sinner. Go to him in your ugliness. I'm trying to find different ways to say the same things. I love Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people, Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Really just bottom shelf practically speaks saying this. The best way to do this, I think, is to pray your emotions. That's what the whole book of Psalms shows us. You don't clean yourself up and then go to God. If you look at a lot of Psalms, the psalmist unabashedly, in a raw way, pours out their heart before God and it's ugly. I'd say there's parts of Psalms where it starts off with just bad theology. Psalm 13, for example. How long, O Lord, will you keep forgetting me? How long must I find counsel in my own soul? David said that. God, if he were a theology teacher, he would circle verse 1. I don't forget. You don't find counsel in your own soul. It's only found in me. God doesn't say you're wrong for feeling that way. He is the perfect counselor. He understands you. He meets you where you're at. He, he practices Romans 12, uh, is it 15? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He does that perfectly. He feels your stress with you. He feels your hurt with you. Even if your self-pity or your anger is unjustified and sinful, he, still, he doesn't go, well, buck up, son. No, he, he feels with you. You know what? Girls are so good at doing this on the phone. You, you, if you hear a girl on the phone, she's like, no, really? Oh, that's awesome. Okay, you know what motion is the girl on the other end of the phone feeling? The mirror image of the one you're hearing. She's excited and she's excited. Or, no, he didn't. I'm so sorry. They don't stay in their mood and say, well, maybe you should have done this instead. Did you bring the receipt? Um, it's a husband answer right there. You had a bad day? Well, did you do this? Um, No, actually feel with the other person. And 
when that happens, there's a connection. God connects with you even when you are a sinner, stuck in your own sin and wrong about the things that you're feeling. He cares about you more than that. So pray your emotions. When you see your heart, don't clean it up and then go to him. You go to him to have it cleaned. He loves you. And this is what softens your heart. It, it, it's a glorious freedom because you realize your kindness does lead to repentance. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It's, it's not my discipline. It's not my, my steadfastness. It's the Lord who's going to change my heart. This is kind of a long way of spelling out what Andrew was explaining. The indicatives lead to the imperatives. What is true leads to what ought to be. There's easier ways to say this, but this is true, therefore I should respond this way. Well, I get stuck sometimes because this is true, but I'm here. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. So do I need to get myself cleaned up or do something? No, I have to go back to the same truth, that the Lord loves this sinner. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary, come, come to me, I'm not going to squash you. And so I get to meet him where I'm at, and then he changes my heart, and new responses come out. I was actually preparing a sermon a while back. Uh, it was for re-engage, actually, and um, it was on communication. And I landed on this point about indicatives and imperatives, saying you, you, your heart needs to be changed before you can speak in a different way. And I prepared this message uh, right before we left for a trip to Louisiana. And um, this is my, um, I, I see that I'm almost out of time, but we were on, my, our, on our way to, to Louisiana for like a week vacation. I prepared this sermon. I knew the points in my mind about how to speak and why to speak and all this other stuff. On our drive to Louisiana, we have three children. We're in the middle of Louisiana. Brandy and I got in our, into an argument. Escalated pretty quickly. So much so, even with the kids' headphones on watching DVDs, they can hear us fighting. We pulled over at the risk of being eaten by an alligator. We pulled over on the side of the road, and we're fighting. And I, my, I was raising my voice. I was breaking all these rules that I was aware of how I'm supposed to speak. And in the middle of it, Brandy got to a point, she goes, this is your problem. You figure it out. And she went back to the car and let me stand out there in the middle of the, at the highway. Like, she didn't leave me, but, you know. I'm standing out there, and I realized, I felt, first of all, shame on you, Mr. Pastor, you know. Here you are, you're about to teach on this stuff when you come back, and you can't apply it. You've broken every rule, you know. I said, wait a second, what's the, what's the closing point? You can't change the way you speak until your heart changes. Where's my heart? Well, I feel, I feel wrongly accused or wrongly, I can't remember, I don't remember the specifics of the argument. I felt like I was the victim, she's the villain. Okay, is love, joy, peace, is that coming out of me? No. Why? Because it's all about me right now. And God, apparently your love for me is supposed to change me right now. Your love is an abstraction. It's just something theologically true, but it doesn't mean anything right now. But I started realizing that's my problem. So I said, Lord, I'm forgetting about the fact that your love has something to do with this. The gospel has something to do with this. And I started just praying to him about that. He started softening my heart, reminding me the truth that I, lo I love you now. And I'm, he changed my heart there on the side of the road. It didn't take terribly long because you go to him. He is generous with his forgiveness and his love and his grace. Changed my heart. I managed to go back into the car and say, honey, I'm sorry. I'm being a jerk. Will you forgive me? 
and we had a decent rest of, rest of the way there. Countless examples of that being played out because it's God who changes our hearts. The God who has given you this command that is an unflinching, unblemished mirror of what we're supposed to do, love him completely and unconditionally, he loves us completely and unconditionally, no matter where you're at, where you are. So let his grace amaze your heart. Let his mercy soften your heart and learn to love him with gratitude and joy. And begin to believe that when you do, your restless heart will find rest in him. We'll be able to love like him because we love because he first loved us. Amen? Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, um, there, is, uh, there are so many nuggets of good, just reminders and truth that, that show up in your word when we, start, we stop to take a look at what that looks like in our everyday lives. And my prayer, Lord, is that this is not a theological abstraction that just kind of gets put on the shelf, but that we remember that what's coming out of us, what's happening around us, the way we're thinking, the decisions we're making, they all point back to a heart that is supposed to be loving you but falls short of that. Would you help us to remember that you love us with all of your heart and that you're eager to cure us, to, to change our hearts, to, to remind us that we're forgiven and that you love us and teach us what it looks like to love out of that kind of overflow of grace and mercy. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.